This is The Visible Hand, a podcast about organizations, economics, and management. My name is Jordi Blanes Vidal, and I am an associate professor at the Department of Management, London School of Economics. My guest today is Vicente Cunhat, an associate professor at the Department of Finance at the London School of Economics. Today, we are going to talk about two of his papers. The first one is called The Vote is Cast, the Effect of Corporate Governance on Shareholder Value. And the second is called Price and Probability, Decomposing the Takeover Effects of Anti-Takeover Provisions. Both papers are published in the Journal of Finance and co-authored with Mireia Giné and Maria Guadalupe. Welcome to the program. Hello, Jordi. Many thanks for giving me the opportunity to, to talk about these papers. So, Vicente, the papers, both of them study the effects of these uh, provisions that you call anti-takeover provisions. Can you start by telling us what is an anti-takeover provision? Yes. Uh, anti-takeover provisions are elements in the bylaws or in the rules of the corporation that uh, make uh, taking over this company more difficult. Difficult. So some of them can be explicit. Uh, the most famous one are poison pills uh, that are explicit legal rules that are there to preclude takeovers. And some of them may be more implicit, like the way the board gets renewed every few years or the way votes are counted. They may be there for other reasons, but they can also be an obstacle for a hostile raider, for a firm that wants to take over this company to efficiently take over this company. So this group of rules that may be uh, may make it more difficult for a buyer to buy this company are called anti-takeover provisions. So why would the board of firm want to introduce these provisions? That is, from a theoretical perspective, the assumption will be, well, if they have these provisions, that must mean that it must be good for the firm or else they wouldn't put them in the legislation of the company. Theoretically, are these provisions expected to be a good thing or are there reasons why they might be bad for creating value and for shareholders? So from a theoretical perspective, the effect of these provisions is ambiguous. Some of them may have a, a reason of being in their own outside takeovers. For example, you may want to have more stability in the board for other reasons, but this additional stability in the board precludes takeovers. Uh, some of them may be explicit defenses against takeovers. And theoretically, uh, on the one hand, this would preclude purchase of the firm, which typically is an efficient, uh, something that includes increases shareholder value and increases efficiency, but they may also be used as a bargaining chip for the firm. So when a, when a firm is trying to acquire your company, having anti-takeover provisions that you can lift or you can change gives the board of the firm that's being taken over some additional obstacles that they can use to bargain for a higher premium. Okay? So the theoretical literature is a bit ambiguous about it in this respect. There's probably a strong quantity effect in terms of precluding takeovers, but there are other side effects that could be possible. So in addition to precluding takeovers, the fact that takeovers are less likely is also creating an agency or making worse the agency problem. I don't think that you refer explicitly to it. Uh, so I want to go back to this. Managers who run the company badly are typically facing the consequences of their actions in that the shareholders will assign low value to the shares and somebody may come and say, well, I can buy most of the shares, take over the company, fire the managers and run it better. But if it is harder to take over the company, then the managers know that even after running the company badly, they're not going to be kicked out. So that provides a lower discipline 
for the current managers to take the right action, put effort, et cetera, right? So that will be, uh, in some sense, like the most direct effect. Absolutely. So there is an effect in terms of entrenchment. These anti-takeover provisions may be there precisely to provide some protection for, for managers, and they may create some managerial slack, some efficiency slack in the sense that managers are not uh, too worried about the market acting like a second board, the market uh, targeting firms that are inefficient with the intent to turn them around to make management more efficient. So anti-takeover provisions can have a further negative effect on top of the mechanical premium quantity effect in terms of uh, making managers more protected against the possibility of a hostile takeover. And if you think of it, all of these reasons may be interlinked. So the premium that you pay is actually partly, you know, the efficiency gains that you expect to make. But but this would be clearly another effect that anti-takeover provisions may provide. So you also refer to a, like a positive premium that arises when the anti-takeover provisions are there, when the firm is bought. And you said, well, if this provision is there, the current manager can say, you can buy the firm, but then it's going to be worth very little to you because it has all these poison pills and all these things that are going to make your life miserable. Why don't you offer us a bigger price and then we will take out these provisions and then you can have your toy that you really value. Okay, So the prediction there will be that the anti-takeover provisions increases the price at which the firm is sold, conditional on the firm being sold. Is there any reason as to why having an anti-takeover provision may not increase the price conditional on the firm being sold, but instead decrease the price? Yes, there are reasons for that. So if you think of it, takeover market a little bit like an auction. In a way, take anti-takeover provisions increase the willingness to pay off a single buyer, but they also preclude other buyers to show up and compete for this firm. So it could well be that the competition of several buyers for a given company actually provides better bargaining chip to the target than the one-to-one bargaining uh, advantage that anti-takeover provisions give you. Uh, and, and later on, we will talk about this, but we have some evidence about this. So it seems to be a, a more of a first-order effect. The, the threat of potential other buyers seems to be a much bigger kind of bargaining chip than the fact that I have this one-to-one advantage because I have this poison pill or this uh, thing that I can change that is bothering you. Okay, so we have several theoretical arguments. They refer both to the creation of shareholder value, but also to the likelihood that the firm is being sold in the future and the price at which the firm is being sold conditional on the the firm being sold. So this is a situation in which we have arguments on both sides. Natural thing in these cases is to go to the data and study whether firms that have a lot of anti-takeover provisions are valued a lot by shareholders. So if these, let's call them from now on ATPs because otherwise the podcast will be twice as long. ATPs are a good thing for the firm. Lots of people will want to participate in these successful firms and the share price will be high. If ATPs are bad, the average share price for firms with lots of ATPs, perhaps after controlling for other characteristics of the firms, will be lower. What is wrong with just comparing the share price or if you want the returns of firms that have or do not have ATPs? So there are two difficulties with an approach in which you just compare firms with many ATPs with against firms with few ATPs. One of them is that ATPs themselves are endogenous to many characteristics of the firm. 
for example, profitability that could affect returns. And the other one is that once we deal with value and returns, the market is constantly trying to anticipate the future effects of the firm characteristics. So it may well be the case that even if ATPs are good or bad for the firm, this has already been priced in, right? So we, we cannot just have a cross-section of firms and look at uh, their current value because according to how many ATPs they have, because you know this value could have been incorporated or not incorporated at given points in time. So we need an environment in which we have some kind of shock to the ATPs and also an environment in which we can deal with the expectations that the market had about this shock beforehand. So the, the second argument that you mentioned will be an argument in which we cannot compare returns. That is changes over time in prices. But in principle, we could compare just prices, right? Because if, as you say, the existence of the ATPs has been incorporated into prices, well, that's a dependent variable that we can measure. Of course, there, presumably in finance, there is a lot of measurement error. You know, it's difficult to compare and so on. The first argument that you gave would be the standard argument of endogeneity or reverse causality, right? Like if I am a terrible manager, then I will really want to have a lot of ATPs because I know that I'm very likely to be kicked out in the absence of ATPs. Okay, so in the first paper, the vote is cast. You have an empirical strategy to overcome these two limitations that you uh, were just mentioning to study the causal effect of ATPs on shareholder value. What is that empirical strategy? Yes, so it turns out that one of the main occasions in which anti-takeover provisions are dropped, that they are basically taken down, is because shareholders propose to managers in a shareholder proposal that the given shareholder provision shouldn't be there. And this uh, gets voted among all the shareholders of the firm. And if the vote passes, there's a high likelihood that this provision will be dropped. There's a, there's a discrete jump, actually, at the majority threshold that in terms of dropping this provision. So this leads to a very kind of standard regression discontinuity design in which we think of close call votes as a good natural experiment in which we could compare a firm that has passed to drop this anti-takeover provision by very little with a firm that has rejected to drop this anti-takeover provision by very little. If you think of the votes as summarizing a lot of the characteristics of the firm, these two firms come from the same distribution, but the likelihood of dropping the anti-takeover provision is actually very different. Okay? And if you think of it, this deals with the two problems that I was mentioning before. First of all, we have in this narrow margin of votes, a large unexpected jump in the likelihood of dropping the anti-takeover provision. And second, if you think of it, there must be an expectation of the market of whether this anti-takeover provision will be there next year or in two years or in three years. But for these two firms, this expectation should be the same or extremely similar, right? So when we partial out the market reaction of a firm that passes the, this proposal versus a firm that rejects this proposal, we are netting out this expectation, whatever it is, right? We don't need to measure it. We don't need to look at any data or find any proxies for this expectation. It gets naturally dealt with by partialing out. So strictly speaking, what we're doing is two things. We're combining an event study in the finance sense, that is the returns on a given date, with a regression discontinuity design. And in fact, we are actually netting out the two event studies. So we're comparing the returns 
on the date in which a firm passes one of these provisions against the returns of a firm that actually rejects this provision. So as you say, this is not a standard regression discontinuity design setting because it's obviously applied you know, to this specific case. The most standard case for this type of design would be one of, say, elections to parliament or to president or, or something like this. And there you have that the voters are all individuals and each voter has a single vote. Presumably they don't coordinate very tightly with each other. You know, so the fact that out of a big country that has maybe millions of people, one person decided to vote in one direction or another or failed to vote because they missed the bus or whatever, that can be considered as, you know, as somewhat random. And this is the way that these designs are typically used in that they compare close votes. Your setting here is slightly different because you don't have a large mass of shareholders, each with a single vote, who do not coordinate with each other because here, presumably, there are like small numbers of shareholders who have big chunks of votes. And there, this may imply that you have a lower number of cases in which the votes are closed because if somebody, say there are three shareholders, each with 33% of the of the voting rights, you are never going to get a close result. You will get either 33% or 66% in favor, but never around 50%, no? There's obviously just a problem of implementation. If you happen to find that there are enough votes, it's not a problem. The second thing here is that the fact that there's a relatively small number of shareholders implies that some of these shareholders may speak to the press, right? And say, imagine that there is a shareholder that has 50.1% of the votes, okay, just for the sake of the argument, and he says to the press the previous day, I'm going to vote in favor. That may appear and, and indeed be like as a close vote in your sample, but that wouldn't meet the condition that the vote is unexpected. Uh, and therefore, in that case, the price will already be incorporated the day before the vote takes place. But again, this seems to be something that doesn't happen so much in your setting. It's a very good question. So I think we do several things regarding this. First of all, we check whether blockholders, the, the top five blockholders of the firm or, or the blockholders that have more than 5% shares each, whether they can be by themselves pivotal. Uh, and this doesn't seem to be the case in our sample, okay? So still having 1% or half a percent is, is a lot. But then you think that things start becoming more like in the in the standard elections. They can, of course, coordinate. And actually, they, many of them uh, reveal the intention of their vote beforehand. And this is probably incorporated in the prices. Here, what we actually do is we look directly at the results so we can see the market reaction on the day of the vote. And it's very clear that for any vote that passes for more than around 5% or fails for more than 5%, the market reaction is close to zero. And this is very intuitive. These votes that pass by a large-ish margin, they were fully anticipated, okay? However, on this plus minus 5% range, we see substantial price reaction on the day of the vote. On both directions. On both directions, which by construction tells you that the market hadn't fully anticipated uh, this vote. So the way to interpret is that there's, in, 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 the, in finance, there's this concept of noise traders. So for us, 
us, these are the noise voters. There's about 5% of voters that are hard, or 10% if you think of both sides, that are hard to predict. They are relatively atomistic, which is enough for our empirical strategy. But it's also interesting in itself, actually, our paper as a side product that we maybe not don't emphasize enough, tells you a little bit what's the level of precision that the market has when it comes to shareholder votes. And potentially you could dig deeper into this question. We didn't, I mean, for us, it was enough to understand that there was, we had enough uncertainty, but you could actually try to measure what is known and what is not using this kind of market reaction implicitly. Okay, so let's think as the market, at least for these closed votes, assigning evaluation that in the extreme example incorporates the value of passing the removal of the ATP multiplied by 50%. Okay, because the day before the market is thinking there is a 50% chance that the vote will pass, a 50% chance that the vote will not pass. Then if the proposal passes, then the price will go up by the value of passing the removal multiplied by the remaining 50%. If the proposal doesn't pass, the price will go down by the value of passing the proposal multiplied again by 50%. That difference is your estimate, correct? Exactly. So what is then the effect that you estimate of passing the proposal to remove an ATP on shareholder value? The actual result that we find, we find a positive result between 1% and 2%. And I think, uh, and this reflects the value of the additional probability that this vote pr- provides you of dropping an anti-takeover proposal. Okay? So this this is the value of the, of the vote in a way. Okay, let's go back to that. You said the value of passing the proposal is between 1% and 2% of shareholder value. But earlier, you said that not all proposals that are passed lead to the ATP being removed because these votes are not binding. Exactly. Management sometimes feels compiled to removing uh, the ATP, but doesn't always actually. So you have to somehow reweigh your estimate by the likelihood that conditional on passing the proposal, the ATP is actually removed. In some sense, this is like an instrumental variable setting, correct? Exactly. It's exactly like an instrumental variable setting. So what, what What are the chances of removing ATP when the proposal is passed and when the proposal is not passed? So we need to rescale that number by about 50%, a little bit under 50%. So we need to roughly double the the coefficient. Okay, so instead of between 1% and 2%, the effect of actually removing the ATP will be between 2% and 4%. Between 2% and 4%, yes. Okay, so... This means that in the set of theoretical arguments that you were giving us earlier, that were all very complicated, so entrenchment, the managers putting less effort, then the likelihood that the firm is sold, that is typically higher if we remove the ATP, but then the price at which the firm is sold, conditional on the firm being sold, which can be a positive effect, a negative effect. You don't know the, the relative importance of all this, but you know that the overall effect is between 2 and 4% for shareholder value. Exactly. We actually provide in the paper a point estimate of 2.7%. And you can see this as a composite of all these theoretical effects that uh, we were talking about before. This is what the value that the market assigns to an anti-takeover provision jointly, including all the potential effects. In the second paper, Price and Probability, you try to decompose or evaluate the relative importance of at least some of these effects. Price and Probability, right? <laughs> so the, the probability that the firm is taken over and the price at which the firm is taken over conditional on the firm indeed being taken over. So we were talking just now about the fact that 
you cannot just compare firms that have ATPs, firms that do not have ATPs. We have this fancy, or well, maybe it's not so fancy anymore. It was fancy 20 years ago. Now it's very standard technique called regression discontinuity design that allows you to establish causal effects. Why can you not use this technique again in order to study the likelihood that the firm is taking over and the price at which the firm is taking over condition on the firm being taken over? So the technique works well to understand the likelihood of the firm taking over. We could actually measure whether with or without ATPs, a firm is more or less likely to be taken over using the same RDD argument that we used before. And we actually do it in the paper. You could also measure the expected, what we call unconditional premium that you expect to make from takeovers with and without anti-takeover provisions. So you could use the RDD technique to show what is the likelihood that you get a premium in the future and you compute you know, all the zeros in a way, all the situations in which you not, don't get a premium and the situations in which you get a premium and compare the expected value of the direct, more mechanical way in which you make money through through takeovers, which is through premiums. Let me tell you here, because this is something that I want for this to be clear. The firm may be taken over in the future, and if it is taken over, then a premium will be paid. Exactly. A premium means that the actual buyer of that firm will pay a higher price for these shares than the price at which the shares are being sold in the regular market. That's why we call it a premium. Every time that somebody wants to take over a firm, typically they pay more than the share price at which the firm uh, shares are trading. So we have that if the firm is taken over, then some premium will be paid that is a positive number. Right? But of course, there is a proportion of firm that will not be taken over. For these ones, there will be no premium. That's why you say there is a bunch of zeros mm -hmm. and then for the firm that are taken over, a bunch of positive numbers, a different positive number for each of these firms. When you add all of these together, that is the unconditional premium. Exactly. And you say that that can be calculated easily with the same type of technique. Yeah. So in both cases, you have the same population of firms in both sides of the regression discontinuity design. So you can compute whether one population is more or less likely to be taken over. And you can also compute all these future gains from takeovers, including the zeros, right? That would keep the two populations on both sides of the regression discontinuity design uh, the same. Not only the same, they are the, the full populations. They are the every fermion sample, right? Exactly. So you can cover this for every fermion sample. That is not a problem. We were talking about the unconditional premium, which uh, hopefully is clear by now, but you are interested in the conditional premium. What is the conditional premium? So the conditional premium is the price that you are going to get for your company, conditional on the fact that it's being taken over, right? And, and this is the one that rings a bell in terms of bargaining. This is what, what the, the literature has been talking about, right? So once we're in a situation in which we are negotiating, let's assume that from an efficiency perspective, we will eventually reach an agreement. Do I get a better price or a worse price for my shares? That is the conditional premium. And this has been the focus of a big part of the M&A literature, the merger literature in finance. But one thing that we emphasize in this paper is that whenever you have a natural experiment or a shock, or when you're comparing to equilibria in which you want to compare the conditional premium across these two situations, very often you have a changing population of firms. Uh, and if you just compare the average price, the average premium paid across both populations, you are bundling two things. You are bundling 
the effect of whichever show you are studying for a given firm with the fact that the population of firms may be changing across both situations, right? And, and this is a, we think it's a general problem, a big part of the literature that we're going to try to overcome in this paper. Okay, so we said that the unconditional premium can be observed for every population, for every firm in the population. Some of them will have a zero, others will have a positive number. Mm -hmm. The conditional premium is a theoretical concept that is defined for every firm. That is, every firm that is you know, in a situation in which they were forced to negotiate with a buyer will have a premium that they managed to extract from the buyer. Mm -hmm. However, this is a number that, while theoretically is there for every firm, you don't not actually observe it for every firm because not every firm is sold. And the firms that are not sold, they do not have a conditional premium number tattooed on their forehead that you can observe, correct? Mm -hmm. So what you're saying is we observe it only for a subset of the firms and that subset itself is changing as a result of not just the removal of ATPs, but anything that we might do to the firm. Anything that may happen to the firm might change the distribution of the firms that are being sold and the type of firm for which we observe the conditional premium. That is what you call the selection effect, correct? Correct. Okay, so should we expect that the firms that are being sold as a result of the removal of an ATP are better or worse than the ones that are not? It's, it's difficult to know. Uh, you could think that in the margin, this could be the firms with the lowest synergies, the ones that are protected by the anti-takeover provision. So you know, in, the, in a way, if you lower a barrier, the ones that actually get you know, affected by this lowering of the barrier were the ones that were marginal in between becoming a target or not. So in that sense, you could think that these are the worst firms. But if you think that ATPs themselves could be endogenous, who knows you know, which firms have more or less anti-takeover provisions, I think that that could, could generate other types of biases. So in principle, yes, one could think that these are the worst firms, but is not so clear. So I, I was thinking about this because this thinking in terms of selection is very hard. At least it's very hard for me. <laughs> I found it very difficult. So I thought about an analogy here and maybe at the end you can tell me how my analogy applies to this case and where does the positive selection, or what an example of a positive selection could be or where my analogy is wrong. Okay, so imagine that I have a car which I want to sell. So somebody is going to come and make me an offer for the car that depends on obviously how much they value the car at. I'm thinking before that person comes, should I clean the car or not? The idea is that if I clean the car, well, that's going to increase the valuation for the potential buyer. And therefore, the likelihood that I get an offer that I find acceptable. So it is clearly going to increase the likelihood that I sell the car, at least weekly. The effect might be zero, but it's not going to make it less likely that I sell the car. The question is, what price will I get for the car conditional on selling it? So now imagine that my car has manual gears and the potential buyer can either prefer manual or automatic gears. I don't know. Okay, let's say 50-50 chance that the buyer prefers one type of or another. So maybe my car is good enough so that even if I don't clean it, I will sell it regardless of the buyer preferences. Okay, In this case, the population of buyers that maybe an offer that is good enough is the same whether I clean the car or not. There is no selection. Comparing the price when I, that I get when I clean the car, the price that I get when I don't clean the car is a good estimate 
of the value of cleaning the car on the premium. But now imagine that if I don't clean the car, only buyers with preferences for manual gears will make me an offer that is high enough because obviously they have preferences that are matched with the actual gears of the car. And in that case, they make me a really good price. If I clean the car, I will just about manage to increase the valuation of the buyers who prefer automatic gears so that the offer that they get is slightly above my reservation price. And I will increase the likelihood that I sell the car, but then the average price at which I sell the car is lower because now it includes some proportion of people who actually don't like the car so much because they prefer automatic gears. So that is an example of negative selection. That is, I have managed to bring into the market potential buyers who actually didn't want to make a very high offer. Therefore, they are comparing the average prices in both scenarios is going to be like an underestimate of the value of cleaning the car because I have managed to bring into the new population individuals with very low valuations. Mm -hmm. I am not finding there what an example of positive selection will be. And I am wondering you could help me to understand theoretically in this case, what could I make how could I adjust my example in order to think about the, you know, the concept of positive selection? So I think your example is very intuitive and it was along the lines of what I was saying before in the sense that in a static market, one buyer, one seller, it does seem that it's the inframarginal sale, sales that were not happening before that are happening now, which are the worst cars or the worst firms. I think what happens in the takeover market is that there are quite substantial sunk costs of, of bidding and of, of buyers to actually make an offer and to, to join the market. And also we know from the literature that the effect of competition and the effect of uh, multiple buyers showing up, it's actually very incremental to the the value of the firms. So I think I find it hard to find very clear cut examples, but I think that the matching between the buyer and the seller could be much better if you have lower anti-takeover provisions. It could also be that those firms that feel safe that they are going to be taken over also are the ones with more the dirtier cars, you know, with more anti-takeover provisions. And then, you know, they are the ones who think of a different market, think of a market in which no matter how good the firm is or how good the car is, everybody's gambling at the likelihood of, you know, selling the car versus the price, right? In that case, it could well be that the decor provisions benefit the higher end of the market, right? So if I have a cheap car, I really want to sell it. I don't mind. It's clean anyway. But if I have a much better car, you know, maybe, I'm, you know, I, I don't know. I, I think your, your clean example is a strange thing. It's not exactly about bargaining. It's about, you know, the laziness of cleaning the car. But it could be that if I am a very good firm, I am really trying to get a good price. If I'm not a very good firm, I really want to sell the company. I'm just there open saying, please buy me. So it could be that the better firms are the ones which are gambling for that kind of better price. So lots of effects of that type, either on the buyer side, like matching, or on the seller side saying, look, I have a real jewel here. I can wait. And those are the firms that are actually dropped in the market when we randomly drop the anti-takeover provisions. Okay, so that's a problem. There is a selection thing that doesn't allow you to compare the conditional premium of firms that are being sold with the removal of the ATPs and the conditional premium of firms that are being sold conditional not removing the ATPs. So one equation that you have in the paper that I think is very neat is that you can decompose the unconditional premium into 
three parts. One of them is the conditional premium. The second is the probability, that is the change in merger probabilities resulting from removing the ATP. And the third is this selection uh, that uh, involves the change in the uh, population of firms that are being sold in one case or another. That is the thing that is really creating the bias in your estimates. We are going to move into the conditional premium in a second, but you said earlier that you can use your regression discontinuity design to estimate the unconditional premium and the effect on the takeover probability. What do you find there? Yes, so we find two very significant results. The first one is that the probability of being taken over goes down for each additional anti-takeover provision that you have by about 4% or 0.9% per year in sample. So it's clear that these things do what they say in the box. They, they protect you against takeover. So the quantity effect is very clearly there. And the other thing we find is that the overall effect of this in terms of shareholder value coming only from this very mechanical part, which is whether you get taken over and the premium that you get paid is actually positive and not so different from what we found in the other papers. So I really think that incentives and dynamic effects and other parts of the, of the equation are there. I also think that the premiums capture some of that, but it does seem that just measuring mechanically this premium and this probability of being taken over actually measures a big part of what the market is discounting and, and when there's takeover provision passes. If there was no effect on the likelihood of takeover, then there wouldn't be selection. Then we are done. Then you, then you are done. In some sense, the fact that there is an effect on probability is what is messing up your estimates on trying to find the effects on the conditional premium, right? Absolutely. So that means that you need to do something else, somewhat complicated, in order to calculate this conditional premium to account for this selection. What is it that you do there? I know you do the combination of two things. Can you start with the first thing or put them together? Explain yes, I mean, how they fit together. Let me start with the most important thing we do. So we actually use a bounding technique following a paper by Lee, in which the only thing we need to assume is that monotonicity assumption. What we assume is that that anti-takeover provisions, given our first result, that they decrease your priority of a takeover, they cannot increase your priority of a takeover, okay? It's a very weak monotonicity assumption. We don't assume that more or less anti-takeover provisions do anything in particular, anything about the intensity. The only thing that we say is that if you drop an anti-takeover provision, the heterogeneous effect of that uh, dropping of the anti-takeover provision could either be zero or could increase the likelihood of a takeover, but it can never be negative, right? That seems like a, a weak assumption indeed, no? It's a fairly weak assumption because if these things are meant to preclude anti-takeovers, either they work or they don't, but they are unlikely to do the opposite. But just to be clear, you actually estimate this. You told us just now that it was something like 4% or 0.9%. Your estimate is on the average effect. I think that what you mean to say here, I mean, sorry, you said it, but just to you know, reiterate the point, is that the effect should be the same that is positive for everybody in the population. Absolutely. That's the critical thing. So it's not something that we can directly observe, right? We can estimate that the average effect is positive and is actually large. And we are assuming or conjecturing that the effect is positive or zero for all firms. That is never negative. Uh, that's the assumption. But we cannot directly observe this because obviously we don't have a clean counterfactual of each firm match with itself with and without anti-takeover provisions. I think the average effect, given that we're controlling by many things, could, you know, give, and given that the effect is large, gives us a hint. But strictly speaking, we are assuming that anti-takeover provisions either preclude takeovers 
or don't, but they never foster them. So you have a, if, if I remember well, a 4% effect, you are, you are assuming that let's say there is not like half of the sample for which the effect is 8% and half of the sample for which the effect is minus 4%, so that you ended up with a plus four. That wouldn't work. So we're assuming that- That will break your assumption. That will break my assumption. Exactly. We're assuming that maybe half of the sample is 8% and half of the sample is zero. Exactly. So hence we get a 4%. But the moment we had a subset of firms for which the effect is actually negative, then that would break our assumption. Then we would need to find, figure out a different way to estimate things that would give us what it's possible actually, but would give us much wider bounds. But in this case, from a theoretical perspective, it seems quite reasonable, right? That if you have something in the legislation that makes it harder to take over the company, that's not going to help. I think so. Yeah. Okay. I think. okay so that's that's the first thing. Or do you want to continue talking about Lee? I can I can continue talking about about how we then implement this, right? So now you have, assume for now that you had a natural experiment in which you force, uh, you have two twin populations, some of them with an antithetical provision, some of them without an antithetical provision, right? And in both of them, we observe a conditional premium. We observe the prices that are being paid for both populations of firms. Now, given our assumption and our result that the effect is positive, we know that in the population of firms without anti-takeover provisions, all the deals of the population with anti-takeover provisions are there. Would have happened. Yeah, should have happened. They have happened anyway, and plus some additional ones. Okay? So our monotonicity assumption simply tells us that all the deals that we observe in the contour group, if you want, are in the treatment group, plus some additional ones, okay? And that's what the, what it buys us, right? It's not that the, like we have all kinds of transitions between the two. All of the deals in the control group are also in the treatment group, right? But we have an additional 4% of firms that we don't know who they are, right? Now, what we do in the paper is we take the best case and the worst case scenario. It's not clear that we have, we don't have a prior, so it's not clear for us what's the best case or the worst case, but we basically think, imagine that that 4% of additional firms are the firms with the highest premium. Well, you can trim the tail of the distribution above you know, the 4% highest tail of the distribution. And then you can compare the trimmed treated group with the control group. Can you explain here what is the distribution? What I, what I mean by the distribution is the, is the observed premiums that we have you know, with and without anti-takeover provisions. So that's all I mean. Okay? Ah, I see. So you have a number for each firm. For the firms that, that have removed the anti-takeover provisions, there is a set of firms that fall in the bottom 4%. Exactly. And these are the ones that you eliminate, mm -hmm. and then you take the average of the rest. Yeah, very simply, in the treated group without anti-takeover provisions, I eliminate the 4% firms with the highest premium, or the 4% firms with the lowest premium, and I compare them with the firms with anti-takeover provisions. And that's going to give me two numbers, right? Uh, an upper kind of uh, limit for the effect and a lower limit for the effect. And, and hopefully, and luckily, in our case, uh, these numbers are meaningful in the sense that they, in, 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 you know, in the case of the premium, they both fall, you know, in our case, in the positive side. Okay, so that seems to be it. Do you need anything else in order to implement this technique? 
So let me talk about one technical point and also a follow-up point. The technical point is that, in all, remember I told you, suppose you have a natural experiment where you just throw in some antithetical provisions, but we don't have such things. So we need to rely on something like our regression discontinuity design. There's a small wiggle there in the sense that we need proper distributions of premia to compare. And in the RDD, we're actually taking a limit. So it's hard to actually have a distribution there uh, of premia. So we can either do two things. We can have arbitrarily small interval around the uh, majority threshold, and we can play with the, the size of that interval. And that's something that we do, and it's, it works well. It doesn't seem to be uh, problematic. The other thing we do to try to get to expand the intuition of regression discontinuity design is to use a technique proposed by Angris and Rokanen, in which we, we actually do a matching model. We match firms on one side, on the other side of the distribution of the, of the voting uh, threshold, but we use the regression discontinuity intuition as a way to validate our matching model. Okay, and I, I you know, this is just something additional that we do in the paper. That that you know, I think it's 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 just a technical issue that we need to use to actually get a broader kind of distribution of firms. So that's one thing that I wanted to mention. But the other thing I wanted to mention is that, and, and, and we didn't talk much about it, we do find a positive effect. We do find that the premium is actually positive. The conditional premium is higher for firms with anti without anti-takeover provisions than with firms with anti-takeover provisions. Um, and, and, and this is, in a way, a bit paradoxical compared with the literature that focuses a lot on bargaining. Okay? Had we found a negative effect, probably we would have stopped there. Okay, but the fact that we found a positive premium kind of called for a bit of additional results because it's not it wasn't so obvious why this was happening. Okay. Let's let, let's think about this. So we are thinking about the premium conditional on the firm being sold. And you were saying earlier that theoretically that premium could be negative when we remove the ATP because the ATP was giving the manager a lot of leverage. The manager was saying, I have this nuclear bomb that I can set on my firm that will make it worthless to you if you buy it. Please make me a better offer and then I will remove the ATP. So that gives out of leverage to the manager. That would imply that if the manager already goes to the negotiation without the ATP, it, the manager is losing leverage, that would imply a negative effect. Alternatively, you said earlier, potentially there is also a positive effect. Not having an ATP attracts many more potential buyers. We have an auction with lots of many more people bidding, conditional on selling the firm, we're going to get a higher premium. You are saying the number that you get is a positive one, which uh, supports the second mechanism that I just gave as opposed to the first mechanism. Yes, uh, but this was a bit of a surprise because I think the literature wasn't too focusing much in this idea of competition among bidders. I mean, it's something that is known, but, but I think it wasn't so prominent in the literature. So because we found a positive effect, I thought we thought that we should dig a little bit deeper, but we do think that this supports this idea of uh, multiple bidders, yes. My understanding from the empirical literature in auctions is that the consensus is that Competition among bidders explains almost everything. You know that the fanciness of the auction design and all this, these are all like very technical points, but they are completely dwarfed by are there lots of people bidding or just a single person? I totally agree. And I think there is, or there was, we tried to kind of uh, bring the two literatures together. In the m and literature, I think both arguments were there, but the focus on the one-to-one -one bargaining in retrospect 
was too high given what we found. I think the, the focus should also be on the number of bidders. I totally agree with you. From the perspective of someone that knows the auction literature, this isn't surprising at all. Number of bidders is a, is a first order determinant compared with other determinants of the price you pay. Okay, so you say that we need to do additional work in order to understand this order to provide support for this channel that seems to be reinforced by our baseline estimate What other analyses do you find to reinforce that mechanism? So we just, given that we thought that number of bidders could be behind the scenes, this is something that we can check directly. And we did check, uh, still within this bounce technique. And, and what we found is that indeed, firms with lower anti-takeover provisions are more likely to be targeted by multiple bidders or to be in a bidding contest in which there are at least two bidders and also more likely to be targeted by, by more hostile kind of bids in a way. So I think all of this we, we did find and, and we did find actually ambiguous results in terms of bargaining, right? On the one hand, the, the premium is actually that the total surplus seems to be bigger if you have multiple bidders, probably due to better matching, but the, the, it's not clear whether the bidder will get more or less because competition will actually skim you a little bit on that part. What about in terms of the characteristics of the firms that are being bought or the, the, the match of the characteristics with the firms that are, you know, you mentioned earlier, potential synergies and all this. Is there, are there some effects there? So I think implicitly by almost as a residual, we can calculate the selection effect. I don't know if this is exactly what you have in mind. So we, we do actually calculate what are the marginal firms that are being taken over now versus the marginal firms that were taken before. And here we find a mild positive effect in the sense that there seems to be that That it, it leans on the positive side. So these firms with higher synergies or you know, better firms, better in the sense that the firms that benefit better from the takeover, the ones that, that are being taken over when you don't have anti-takeover provision. So in this particular example, this would point as a, if you did a naive exercise, you would get a, a positive bias that we are actually undoing, but still we find a positive effect. Just to conclude, this seems like a very proficient technical exercise, but <laughs> I would like to ask you a question that that for somebody who is not so versed in this like a finance literature seems that needs a little bit of justification which is why would you want to decompose these effects to start with that is you told me in the first paper that the overall effect for shareholder value is positive from a shareholder perspective what do i care whether this comes from the increased likelihood of Uh, mergers or acquisitions or the premium being paid, conditional acquisition, these seem like relative minor effects or questions of secondary importance uh, compared to the overall effect. Why is it important to decompose uh, these effects? For at least two reasons. I agree with you that from a shareholder perspective, the overall effect is the one you probably care the most for. But there is this debate within firms and within academics still in terms of the trade-off of anti-takeover provisions. And, and people would often bring heterogeneity into the picture as well, saying, look, there's two effects, positive and negative. These vary across firms. For our firm, the bargaining effect is probably very strong, right? And I think we, we need anti-takeover provisions somewhere. It may well be the case for some firms, maybe young firms, firms with a lot of you know hard-to-sell future growth opportunities, etc., that you may want to wait 
or bargain for a better price. But I think in this debate, I think it's very useful to, to throw in this idea that at least on average, it does seem that this bargaining element is very weak. Uh, and also, once you take into account competition, it's, it's actually the opposite, right? It goes the other way. So that's one of the things, one of the motivations by, by which I think the paper could be important. The other thing that's important is that we've been teaching this to our students for many, many years that there's a trade-off between price and probability. And on average, which in the end, you know, it's an important kind of benchmark. On average, this doesn't seem to be there. Actually, there is actually no trade-off. If you want to maximize shareholder value, you should, on average, drop these antithetical provisions. Of course, I don't think that these antithetical provisions are there completely by accident. So I think there is probably a life cycle of these antithetical provisions. It's very often when the firms are very young and start to be listed that these antithetical provisions are there, possibly for a good reason. But then they take probably too much time to disappear. And when we see them disappear, it does seem that it's too late. So we see these positive effects, right? So I think we, you know, without trying to kind of give a final answer, we do contribute to a valid, validly to a debate. And also we, it has to be done in a careful way because if it's not careful, then having practical implications is difficult. And at the same time, you know, as usual, when you try to be very careful, your answer is limited, but that's the nature of, of research, I think. I'm in favor of careful rather than careless. Me too. <laughs> Even if the answer is narrow. Okay, Vicente, thank you very much for coming to the program. It has been a pleasure. Thank you. It's been a pleasure as well. My guest today has been Vicente Cuñat. My name is Jordi Vanessi Vidal, and this is the Visible Hand podcast. Please visit our website, thevisiblehand.uk, for links to the other papers that we discussed, introductory music and logo by Aitana Blanesiso, episode produced by Anderson Tan. <laughs>